You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On February 16, 1986, a San Diego couple was visiting a campsite on the Los Coyotes Indian Reservation in Warner Springs in remote northern San Diego County, California. The reservation was situated in a very rural area about eight miles east of California's 79. The couple was walking their dog around 2.30 p.m. when they stumbled on a body. The fully clothed woman was lying on the ground out in the open right near the campgrounds. She lay in a small clearing surrounded by scrub brush and next to a large branch. She was dressed in blue jeans, a blue sweatshirt with gray sleeves, and thermal underwear, both tops and bottoms underneath her clothes. She wore pink underwear and no shoes. The San Diego Sheriff's Office had jurisdiction over this area, even though it was a gated Indian reservation. Deputies responded and removed the deceased woman who bore no identification for an autopsy. She exhibited significant decomposition, indicating to investigators that she'd been deceased for some time, possibly as much as two months. Both cold weather and animal predation hindered an accurate inference as to date of death. Unfortunately, the level of decomposition also prevented the pathologist from making a specific determination as to the cause of death. The cause and manner of death in the autopsy report are listed as undetermined, undetermined. However, notes indicate that homicidal violence was involved. She was a murder victim. And I've been asked not to reveal some specific details of the case, but suffice it to say that the Jane Doe showed evidence of being restrained. A sexual assault kit was rendered useless, at least by 1986 standards, because of the level of decomposition of the victim. However, the pathologist collected some of her head hair and pubic hair. The initial incident report is incredibly scant, amounting to just two pages, but contemporary reporting indicated that the woman was believed to have been killed elsewhere. Modern investigators are skeptical, since she was found in such a remote area. Why bring her body all the way out there, miles from anywhere, just to dump it in the open? But it's unknown exactly where she died. Another thing that's unclear is whether a green jade ring was found near the body, as some reports indicated, or actually on the Jane Doe's right middle finger, as a 2006 report stated. The San Diego Sheriff's Office released some information to the press seeking help from the public in identifying the Jane Doe. It was noted that she was between 20 and 40 years old, Caucasian, about 5 foot 6 inches tall, and she had curly, long auburn hair and brown eyes. No leads came in, and over the ensuing years, investigators were relegated to reviewing missing persons reports in the region and appealing to the public for tips. 
but Jane Doe remained unidentified. Eventually, she was cremated. There was a DNA grant back in the early 2000s that allowed investigators to review old cases like Jane Doe's. But since all they had kept of Jane Doe was hair samples, they weren't able to obtain her DNA. Additional review was conducted in 2006, but nothing came of this either. It wasn't until 2022 that the San Diego Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit decided to see what they could do with the hairs taken from Jane Doe. As longtime listeners know, Brian Patterson and Jeffrey Vandersip at the San Diego County Sheriff's Office are going gangbusters in using forensic genealogy to identify does and solve cold case homicides. Their team is the only one I know of in which the genealogy work is conducted entirely in-house. The Sheriff's Regional Crime Lab has dedicated lab techs conducting cutting-edge testing and analysis in support of the cold case unit's investigative efforts. In this case, Vandersip and Patterson were determined to identify the 1986 Jane Doe, but all they had was her hair. Well, no problem. Scientists can now extract DNA from human hair, even rootless hair in some cases. In this instance, it was a pubic hair with root that provided the information they needed to crack the case. Jane Doe's SNP profile, which a private lab utilized by the cold case unit was able to obtain. In February 2022, armed with the genetic profile they needed to conduct forensic genealogy, the San Diego Sheriff's cold case team uploaded the profile to GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. This turned out to be a relatively straightforward forensic genealogy investigation. The closest DNA relative in the database shared approximately 200 centimorgans with Jane Doe. That doesn't sound like a lot, but lesser matches also appeared who shared no DNA with this DNA relative, meaning that the investigators could see relatives on both the maternal and paternal sides of Jane Doe's family tree. The highest DNA relative was likely a second cousin of Jane Doe or another relative of similar relationship, so the investigators didn't have to research her tree past the great-grandparent level. And it turned out there were no pitfalls, no adopted-out children or misattributed parentage events. Also, the tree branches were relatively manageable. These were smaller, well-documented families. Finally, the names of the second cousins in Jane Doe's tree were quite unusual and easy to track. As Jeff Vandersip told me, they weren't finding a bunch of Smiths and Jones. As we will hear, Jane Doe herself turned out to have quite a distinct surname. The investigators spoke to three second cousins to obtain familial histories as they worked their way through the tree. As Detective Patterson pointed out to me, cold case investigator phone calls to the extended families of Doe's are often eagerly answered, and people are very willing to help. Each of these second cousins had tested their DNA through commercial testing companies and were willing to upload to GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA. Or they were people who appeared in public family trees on Ancestry.com and, when contacted by the investigators, agreed to upload their DNA profiles to one of the searchable databases. In this way, the investigators fleshed out their Jane Doe's tree quite expeditiously. Soon, they realized that a family that appeared in the tree in close relation to three of the lower-level DNA relatives was promising. The family bore the last name Zabolski. They hailed from Michigan, nowhere close to San Diego County, but the three daughters in this family were of the right age to be Jane Doe. In fact, the Zabolski girls were the best fit of all the potential relatives in terms of tree placement and age. Starting with the oldest daughter, Vandersip searched her name and hit the jackpot. 
He came up with a decade-old entry on a now-defunct website called lostfriends.org. On that site, a private eye had posted that he was seeking a missing woman whose family was looking for her. Her name was Claudette Zabolski Powers. Vandersip and Patterson were elated. Could it be this easy? There was one way to find out. They contacted the family. And they learned that, sure enough, Claudette Powers had been missing since the mid-80s. No missing persons report on her had ever been filed, and the family had not entered DNA into the CODIS missing persons database. But Claudette had not been heard from in over 35 years. And guess where she was last believed to be living? California. It was time to get a DNA sample from Claudette's living relatives to either exclude or include her as their Jane Doe. Her mother and daughters were all still living. DNA samples from Claudette's daughter and Claudette's mother confirmed the parent-child relationships. Jane Doe was Claudette Jean Zabolski Powers. Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Claudette Jean Zabolski was born on January 13, 1962, in Coldwater, Michigan, to parents Claude S. Zabolski and Lila May Zabolski. Claudette was the oldest of their three daughters. Her younger sisters are Laura and Lucinda. Claudette grew up on the family hog farm in Camden, Branch County, Michigan. We don't have a lot of information on her early life. Her daughter has related that, at some point, Claudette may have suffered a head injury in a fall that impeded her cognitive abilities somewhat thereafter. Claudette married young to a man named Paul Powers. Paul was in the Army, and there is some indication from spotty military records that Claudette and Paul might have been stationed in North Carolina and then ended up in Washington State. Claudette gave birth to two daughters during this time. Then, for unknown reasons, Claudette seems to have left and moved to California. This is believed to have taken place in late 1983 or early 1984. She left her daughters, ages about four and one, with their father. The girls were told that their mother abandoned them and ran off with another man, but we have absolutely no way of knowing what the actual circumstances of Claudette's leaving were. Her girls were too young to know, and her husband is the source of this information. We cannot know his motives, but when modern investigators reached out to him and Claudette's now-grown daughters, he was not cooperative with their investigation into Claudette's disappearance. Anyway, after Claudette went to California, the daughters that she shared with Paul were raised by Claudette's mother, since Paul was in the Army and could not care for them. Claudette never filed for divorce that we know of, and it's unclear if the marriage was officially dissolved, but investigators believe that Paul remarried at least once. Unfortunately, Claudette's family had little to no information about her later life after she left her family. Their recall of dates and locations was vague or non-existent, and it seems Claudette had not shared a lot with them. But of course, her later life, with its possible clues leading to her killer, were what investigators were focused on most. So Vandersip and Patterson contacted the PI, who was a retired police officer. He denied having any idea what they were asking about, Claudette Powers, his client, all of it. It was weird. They hung up, disappointed. 
Then within hours, the PI suddenly called back. He said he'd checked on the two men and recognized that they were, quote, legit. He said that indeed, the Zabolski family had hired him in 2011 to try to find Claudette, who was MIA. The PI had tracked down some acquaintances of Claudette's and was able to relate that she was last believed to have been living in Escondido in San Diego County. Specifically, the PI learned from acquaintances of hers that she had possibly lived at an address on Fig Street and worked as a waitress. We do have one concrete date which we can rely on as being correct. Claudette's family last heard from her on September 9, 1984. Tragically, her father Claude had been killed in a tractor accident around September 7, 1984, at age 47. Her family called Claudette and asked her to come home for the funeral. She declined. Her sisters did not know why, but theorized later that Claudette might have been concerned that her family would force her to remain in Michigan, or possibly return to her marriage. After that September 9th phone call, her family never heard from her again. They never filed a missing persons report because, in their minds, Claudette had made a choice to remain out of contact with the family. Twenty years later, they hired the PI to try to locate her, but by that point, unbeknownst to them, she was an unidentified victim of a homicide. It is believed that Claudette was killed in late 1985 or very early 1986, when she was just 23 or 24 years old. Her sisters and mother recognized the jade ring found on or near her body as one similar to a ring she owned. San Diego investigators are now attempting to reconstruct the last year or two of Claudette's life to see if they can figure out who killed her and dumped her in Warner Springs, far from Escondido where she was believed to be living. Unfortunately, they have not been able to determine much of anything about Claudette's day-to-day existence. Detective Patterson has struck out at finding records of Claudette with the IRS and the Social Security Administration. It's possible that if she was indeed working as a waitress, she was paid cash under the table and didn't pay taxes or Social Security. Law enforcement databases don't go back into the early 80s, so the investigators haven't been able to check on any law enforcement contact for Claudette. Residential address records show no sign of her. It's possible she was couch surfing or subletting off the books. As you can hear, it's been an uphill battle to even begin to get an understanding of who in Claudette's life might have wanted her dead. Claudette's younger sister Laura recently issued a video statement pleading for anyone who knew her sister in the 1980s to please contact the sheriff's department. She says in part, quote, It's really hard. It's really hard on her kids. Somebody knows what happened. If you knew what happened to her, please come forward, please. We need closure, end quote. Laura told NBC San Diego, quote, Claudette was a very loving and caring mom. She loved her kids very much. She loved her family very much, end quote. Now realizing that she vanished from their lives because she was murdered, Claudette's family is very anxious to learn more about her, what caused her to drop out of their lives, and who was responsible for taking her away from them. While the San Diego cold case investigators are working on Claudette's case, they are also working on another case that may shed light on hers. On April 9, 1986, just two months after Claudette's remains were discovered, the remains of a man were discovered 14 miles away along the same stretch of California 79. A man whose car had broken down found a male skeleton in a hilly field between Warner Springs and Santa Isabel. The John Doe was dumped in an equally remote location as Claudette, although close to an off-the-beaten-path biker bar that was frequented by outlaw motorcycle gangs. Detective Lisa Brandon of the Sheriff's Office told NBC San Diego, quote, So we think they may have been together. 
It's not an area where you typically find people. It's a really remote area, end quote. But the geographic and temporal similarities are not the only parallels with Jane Doe's case. The man was also believed to be in his 20s and, like Jane Doe, was wearing thermal underwear under his clothing. However, unlike Jane Doe, he was wearing shoes. He remains to be identified. John Doe was also killed by homicidal violence, although different from that which killed Claudette. The length of time he was estimated to have been deceased aligns his death generally with hers. Investigators are now trying to figure out whether the two were together and the same person or persons killed and dumped their bodies. If the two cases are related, perhaps the John Doe was killed and then Claudette taken to the campgrounds by her captor or captors and victimized. This is all totally speculative. DNA analysis is being conducted as I speak to attempt to give a name to the John Doe. If the investigators can figure out who he is, then perhaps his name will lead to some information on Claudette. Or his case might be completely unconnected. I asked Patterson and Vanderson whether, if Claudette's case is a standalone decades-old homicide and they don't have her body or a rape kit, how they could possibly hope to solve it. They told me that it's a long shot, but their crime lab is currently testing some physical evidence from Claudette's case that may be linked to her killer to see if they can extract any identifying information. The San Diego investigators are actively seeking any information the public may have about Claudette Powers. If you know anything about Claudette, her life, or whom she may have been associated with, please call San Diego County Crime Stoppers at 888-580-8477. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID podcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.